Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. And I want to just say, echo what has been said earlier by Pastor Ted and wish all of you a happy Mother's Day today. I know that for some of you in this room today that it's a special day because you're not accustomed, you're not, it's not normal that you have your children and maybe your grandchildren with you and today is that day and you're excited about that. So I'm excited for you and for some of you it's the other way around. You're, you're, the children are here and normally here and you've got, you're flanked by your mother or your grandmother and, and that's a special day for you. And so regardless of what scenario you may find yourself in this morning, I want to say happy Mother's Day to you and we're glad that you have come to join us for worship here at Ivy Creek. It is good to see all of you here. You know, it is a it is a good and a very righteous thing for us to celebrate and to honor mothers. And in fact, this is a, 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 a wonderful opportunity for believers to honor all Christian women. The Bible tells us very clearly in Scripture, in Proverbs 31, verse 30, that charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And that is just a, a wonderful thing for us to recall on a day like today that, that, that we come together and many of us have the opportunity to praise those women who have impacted our lives in such wonderful ways as God has given them the opportunity. So if you're able today, I hope that you'll take the opportunity to, to, to spend time with your mother, to call her if you have that opportunity. I hope you'll take time to praise and honor your wives and I hope that you'll take time to praise and honor those women, those Christian women that God has put into your life who have impacted you, and I hope that you'll take time to do that today. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, the third chapter. Mark chapter 3, we are going to continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark that we have been on now for, for quite some time. And uh, as the Lord would have it in His divine providence and the way that He orchestrates things to happen, we come across a passage today that is going to allow us to, to deal with the family. It's going to allow us an opportunity to be introduced to Jesus' mother, Mary, for the very first time in Mark's gospel. And we're also going to be introduced to Jesus' brothers, uh, who all of them had come to, to Galilee from the city of Nazareth, where Jesus had been raised. And, and, and they come to Galilee to a place where he's been ministering now. That's where we found ourselves uh, located throughout the gospel of Mark thus far. And Jesus has been ministering with, uh, there in that city, and so his family comes to meet him there. But what we will see is that this reunion that takes place between Jesus and his family, well, it's not what we might call a happy one. In fact, Mark tells us that the family's thoughts concerning Jesus and their attempts to interact with him are just not all that positive at all. Now, there's also another group that Mark tells us about who have traveled to the area of Galilee to interact with Jesus. We've met them before. They are the scribes uh, who, who have come from Jerusalem. And, and so Mark tells us the story of the scribes. He sandwiches it in, in between his two different studies of what takes place with, between Jesus and his family. And what we learn is that these scribes have come to Galilee to interact with Jesus and the people of Galilee, but as we'll see, just like it is with Jesus' family. It's not a very positive impression that we are left with. So as we read this passage today, I want you to keep in mind that, that Mark is telling us two stories. One involves how Jesus' own family responded to him early on in his ministry. And the other involves how a knowledgeable set of religious leaders responded to him. Both of those responses proved to be wrong. And both of those responses open up an opportunity 
for Jesus to clarify for us who he is and how we ought to respond to him. So with that as an introduction in our text, I want us to begin reading in what in the New King James is the last half of verse 19. Some of your versions, you'll see that it actually begins with verse 20. It's just a slight break in the difference. But really it talks about, we're going to pick up right after Jesus had called his 12 disciples to him. And, and, and Mark has named all of them. And so at the end of verse 19, in my version, it says this, And they went into a house. Verse 20. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people, or some of your versions would say his own family, heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. And then Mark tells us that he said this because they said he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came. Standing outside, they sent to, and sent to him, calling him. And the multitude was sitting around him, and they said, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. A word that on Mother's Day coming to us as it has, Lord, may seem a little strange. And yet, God, at the same time, we recognize that your word is absolutely perfect and it is righteous and it is given to us for our benefit and for our, to help us to understand who you are and who we are and how we are to respond to you. So I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would work in our lives this morning through your word to open our hearts to an understanding of you that, that goes deep into who we are and helps us to really be able to assess who we are in light of what you have revealed to us. Father, I pray that everything that we do and say would be found acceptable in your sight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This passage begins by telling us that Jesus and his disciples went into a house. And as I said, the context for that comes right after Jesus had gone up onto a mountain and had called his 12 disciples to him. We looked at that passage this past Sunday. And many scholars believe that when they came down from the mountain, they went back to the city of Capernaum, which sort of served as Jesus' hometown, his home away from home, after he had left Nazareth where he had been raised. 
and they went back to Simon Peter and Andrew's house. You recall that we've already seen Jesus working in and out of that house on multiple occasions thus far in Mark's gospel. And so they went back to that same house again. And you'll recall that that house was located there in, in Capernaum, which was near the Sea of Galilee. It's also important that we note not only that they were back there and in that house, but that Mark also tells us of the continued popularity of Jesus. He alerts us to the fact that, that multitudes continued to press in around Jesus to the degree that he tells us there they couldn't even eat. There were so many people pressing in around him in this house that he couldn't even take time to do the natural thing of sitting down and, and having a meal. You'll recall that crowds had been coming and flocking to Jesus for quite some time. We looked at this last week. They had come from the north, south, east, and west of Galilee. They had come from all over Palestine to, to see Jesus because they had heard about his healing powers. They had heard about his ability to, to exercise demons. They had heard about the astonishing way in which he taught. And so here they have come and they continued to press around him once again. And so that is the setting of this passage. It's the background that allows us to, to understand what takes place in this passage. Jesus is back at Capernaum and he is surrounded by multitudes who press in around him. Now with that in mind... As I mentioned in my introduction, Mark identifies two groups. Two groups who travel to where Jesus is at this particular time, at the height of his popularity, in order to intervene and oppose him. In fact, note with me the first point on your outline this morning because I want you to see sort of what I believe to be an overarching statement that tells us what's taking place in this passage. The first point on your outline says it this way. Two groups who should have been on the inside supporting Jesus were instead on the outside opposing him and attempting to intervene in his ministry. Now, the first group, as we read about, that Mark tells us about and identifies who are attempting to intervene into Jesus' ministry is Jesus' own people, as the New King James translates it, or as many of your other versions would translate it, Jesus' own family. And that is also confirmed by the context there in verses 31 and 32. Back in verse 21, we find out why Jesus' family had come from Nazareth to Galilee to intervene into his ministry. And what we learn is the first sub-point on your outline this morning that I've stated for you this way, point A, Jesus' family intervenes because they think he is deranged. Notice what verse 21 says. When his own people, his own family heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him for they said, he's out of his mind. Now, his own family thinks he's crazy. They think he's lost his senses. The question is why? Why had they come to that conclusion? Well, there is debate with regard to the answer to that question. I believe Mark gives us a little bit of a clue right there in the context of what he's told us. Mark says that, that his family came when they heard this. Now, what is the this that they heard that really caused them to get involved and to, to have so much concern? Well, the immediate context tells us that, that that happened when Jesus and his disciples got back to the house and the crowds pressed in upon him so that they couldn't even eat. In other words, the pressure of ministry, the, the pressure of the crowds was so great, it was so encompassing, and the demands were such that Jesus didn't even have time, couldn't even find the time to carve out to sit down and eat a meal. Perhaps some of you mothers and potentially some of you fathers out there have had some of the same concerns for your children over the years. 
You've seen how they've worked so hard and burned the candle at both ends to the degree that you have become very concerned about their health and their welfare. You've wondered whether or not they were eating right and whether or not they were taking care of themselves. And you've probably even sat them down at one point or another and had a conversation with them. For some of you children out there, your parents may be doing the same thing and you've had to bring them in and talk to them about some of their habits. You know, here's the thing. Sometimes that's an appropriate thing to do. It's an appropriate thing to do when you love someone to look at what actions they may be engaged in to determine whether or not those actions are actually producing good things in their lives or not so good things. Well, that's how some people interpret the actions of Jesus' mother and brothers in this passage. You see, back in Nazareth, they had gotten all the same information that the other outlying areas in Palestine had gotten concerning Jesus. They'd been alerted to the multitudes that were flocking to him. They were alerted to all the miracles that Jesus was performing. But they'd also heard that he may not be taking as good a care of himself as he should. They'd heard that he was staying up all night praying. They heard that he kept moving from place to place because the crowds kept flocking to him. And now it had gotten so bad that he wasn't even able to eat right. Something... Something needed to be done. Others, however, point to the fact that in, in the statement that is made in verse 21 that Jesus is out of his mind, that there's something deeper going on than a mere concern for Jesus' health and well-being. Some scholars propose that his family was embarrassed by Jesus. I mean, after all, who goes up on a mountain and calls 12 disciples to himself? Who does the kind of things that Jesus did, creating the kind of attention for himself that Jesus did? Making a spectacle of himself. And therefore, some believe that Jesus' family saw his actions as shameful, even humiliating. Still others point to the fact that, this, that at this point, Jesus' brothers did not believe that there was anything special about him. I mean, what we know is that Jesus' brothers did not come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah until after the resurrection took place. In fact, in John chapter 7, we find Jesus' brothers kind of rising up against him. In fact, they're taunting him. They're, they're teasing him a little bit and saying, why don't you go on down to Judea and show all of the magic works that you can do so that everybody can just see who you are. And John tells us that his brothers said these things to him because they did not believe in him. Now, it is somewhat more difficult for us to imagine that Mary, Jesus' own mother, would have had the same conviction about Jesus that her other sons did, particularly in light of what we learn in the other Gospels about the miraculous conception of Jesus and the, the angel of the Lord coming to her and, and speaking to her at that time and, and, and telling her about what God intended to do through him. But nevertheless, we still must admit that Mary was still a human and that at times she still struggled, no doubt, with Jesus' divine nature. Regardless, the point Mark is making is that Jesus' own family, whether it was out of misplaced concern for his health or that they were embarrassed by him or simply because at this point they just didn't believe him to be the Son of God, they determined that intervention was necessary. They needed to lay hold of him, as Mark tells us there, because he was obviously deranged and out of his mind. So that's the first group that Mark introduces us to and tells us about in this passage. It was Jesus' own family. But then interestingly enough, Mark breaks off from telling us about them and then begins to start telling us about the second group 
another group of people who had also come to Galilee, not from, not from Nazareth, but rather from, from Jerusalem. And they had traveled there because they too wanted to intervene into Jesus' ministry and to shut it down. And it did, they did not come because they had concern for Jesus' health and well-being or anything like that. But as the second point on your outline, this tells you this, point B tells you this, the scribes, well, they intervene because they think that Jesus is demon-possessed. Jesus' family thought he was deranged. The scribes thought he was demon-possessed. Now, we should note that these Jewish scribes, they were legal specialists who likely were emissaries who had been dispatched from the Sanhedrin to Capernaum to check up on Jesus. You see, word had gotten to them just like it had gotten to his parents, just like it had gotten to all the other people about all the things that Jesus was doing, about all the healings that were taking place, all the, the exorcisms that were taking place in the area of, of Capernaum. And so they sent these scribes to go out there to see what was going on and try to determine what was the situation that was taking place. As a matter of fact, William Lane suggests that the scribes' purpose in coming was to examine Jesus' miracles and to determine whether Capernaum should be declared a seduced city, the prey of an apostate preacher. And what we learn is that based upon their findings, and based upon their accusations, they conclude that Jesus was demon-possessed. Three quotes are attributed to them in this passage that I read for you. There are two of them in verse 22. They say about Jesus, he has Beelzebub. And then they also say, by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. And then we find another summary statement down in verse 30. that says that they said he has an unclean spirit. Now, the name Beelzebub is, it was a name given to the Canaanite god Baal. You may have heard of him spoken about in the Old Testament. Well, the name Beelzebub was given to him by the Israelites as a mocking name. It was a, a name that came to mean the Lord of the Flies, which we probably heard a book entitled that somewhere along. I may have had to read it when we were in English class or literature class. But then that also more literally means Lord of the Dung Heap. You didn't call somebody Beelzebub and think that that was a compliment. Put it that way. Then to say that Jesus was being empowered by such a demon, such a prince of demon, as the name came to be understood, meant that he was being empowered by the, by the ultimate demon to do the things that he was doing. And it was by the power of the prince of demons that he was actually casting out demons. Now here's what I find interesting about this passage. Nowhere in here do the scribes question whether or not miracles were taking place. Nowhere do they question whether or not exorcisms were actually being conducted. Nowhere in here do they, do they question whether or not somebody was really healed of, of their diseases. No, the, the problem that is presented in this text is that they, they specifically say that the power to be able to accomplish these things came as a result of Jesus being possessed by a demon. And though it's not specifically stated here, such accusations by the scribes were intended to brand Jesus as a sorcerer, one who was not whom he claimed to be, and one who needed to be stopped. So Mark has introduced us to these two different groups, both of whom should have known better, quite frankly, both of whom come to where Jesus is 
in order to attempt to intervene, both of whom attempt to stop and shut down his ministry. His family should have known better because they would have known him personally. Particularly Mary would have known since the moment she conceived that her son was special. God had ordained him to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Even his brothers should have known better. They would have had more insight into who he was as a man than pretty much anyone else, yet they go after him to get a hold of him to shut down his ministry. The scribes, well, they should have also known better. They had made it their lifelong pursuit of knowing the Old Testament, of studying the law, of being those who were well-tuned and well-versed in what the Old Testament prophets would have written. Therefore, they should have been familiar enough with the Scriptures to have known that God had promised to send His Messiah, and when He did, that His coming would be accompanied by signs and wonders. Nevertheless, they recognize, rather than it being God working through His Holy Spirit in Jesus' life, Rather, the scribes attribute what they see happening to the work of Satan and to the prince of demons. So two groups who should have known better, who should have been on the inside supporting Jesus, were instead on the outside opposing him and attempting to intervene in his ministry. And that's the first point. Then that leads me to the second point on your outline. Point number two this morning is this. Jesus responded to the attempts at intervention with an argument from logic, a stern warning, and a redefinition of family. An argument from logic, a stern warning, and a redefinition of family. Let's look at each of those this morning. I like how Mark begins verse 23. He says, Jesus called them to himself. Now, in the context, he's talking here about the scribes. He calls the scribes and he's like, guys, come here. <laughs> come here, let me tell you something. Let, let me explain something to you. Interestingly enough, it's the same phrase that he uses when he talks about calling his disciples to himself. Only here, he's calling them to himself in order to give them a reprimand. And you kind of wonder how they would have responded to such a call. Jesus says, come around, let me explain something to you. And then he begins to dismantle their argument. He begins to show them the fault in their logic. Notice what Jesus says. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, well, he cannot stand and he has an end. In other words, what Jesus is saying is if Satan were to cast out demons, well, then he would be defeating his own purposes. He would be working against himself. He would be acting contrary to his own interests. And that's not what Satan's about. Satan is about destroying the works of God. So therefore, simple logic reveals that Jesus cannot be casting out demons using demonic power. But that's just the first half of his argument. He goes on in the second half of his argument in which he refutes these false accusations of the scribes by saying that though Satan would never destroy his own kingdom, well, that doesn't mean that his kingdom is safe and secure by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, Jesus says, no one, no man can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Now, in this parable that Jesus tells, Jesus identifies Satan as the, as, as the, the, the strong man in the house, but then he identifies himself as one who's even stronger. One who's able to bind him up. One who's able not only to bind him up, but to go in and plunder all of the things that is in his house. And as Mark Strauss has written, the point Jesus makes is clear. Through his healings and exorcisms, 
The power of the kingdom of God is invading and overwhelming the domain of Satan. So let me summarize what Jesus says here in his refutation of the scribe's accusation that he was demon-possessed. It's sub-point A there under point number two, and it's this. The fallacy of the scribe's claim that Jesus was demon-possessed lies in the fact that Satan cannot cast himself out. However, Jesus, who is stronger, can and will defeat Satan. So what we've seen is that the religious leaders came to Capernaum They witnessed firsthand the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' exorcisms and healings. But they attribute those works to the power of Satan, to an evil spirit. And as one has put it, they looked directly into the light, but then they turned to darkness. And it is in that context of what the scribes did that Jesus makes this very stern warning that he comes with in verses 28 and 29. Notice the next subpoint on your outline. Really what Jesus says here is this. While forgiveness of sin is offered, the conscious, willful, rebellion, rebellious rejection of the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ ultimately leads to the impossibility of forgiveness. Notice that when Jesus gives this stern warning, he begins it with a word that is positive, a word that is hope-filled, a word of good news. Verse 28, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. And listen, that is really good news for every one of us sitting in this room this morning. Because you see, as we might imagine, there are just some things that just seem so far removed from our ability to think that those things can be forgiven. And yet Jesus says all of those things can be forgiven. So in light of the good news of what Jesus says is available to each and every one of us, we need to really take note of what he says next because he starts with the word but there in verse 29 and he makes plain he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation. Now, what Jesus says here brings up the subject that many of us have heard referred to in our lives as the unpardonable sin. And listen, that subject has long been very misunderstood and a very misinterpreted concept. However, the context of this passage really helps us give an understanding. It gives us a necessary guidance that we need to know how, what the unpardonable sin is, and, and we need to know if we've ever committed it. And we just noted what Jesus describes involves attributing the mighty, miracle-working power of Jesus to Satan. It it involves being given the opportunity to look directly into the light, but then refusing to do so and instead turning to the darkness. This is what Jesus refers to as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mark makes sure that we know that because he gives this... He gives this uh, stern warning there in verses 28 and 29. And then verse 30 tells us the reason why he gave it was because they had said, the scribes had said, he has an unclean spirit. Therefore, what we have to conclude is that the unpardonable sin is directly related to and a direct result of blaspheming the Holy Spirit of God. Matt Chandler has described the blasphemy of the Spirit as the knowledgeable, willful, and continued rebellion against the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Another one has put it this way. He says to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is not a careless act. It's a calloused attitude. 
He says it's not a mere denial, but it is a determined denial. It's not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, and wide-eyed rejection. In other words, it is the deliberate refusal to accept the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus would go on to teach later in his ministry, in John's Gospel, the 16th chapter, what the work of the Holy Spirit actually is. And he says that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, he says, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction to men, women, boys, and girls. That, that because of their sinfulness, they have an absolute need to believe in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus as their only hope for salvation. And as Jesus teaches us here in verse 29 of Mark chapter 3, there is no greater danger than to hear the gospel message and then to turn and walk away from it. There's no greater danger than to be given the ability to look in, straight into the light and yet turn and embrace the darkness. Now the question that is often asked and pondered is this, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Well, here is the way to know that you have not. Repent of your sin. Confess it to the Lord and turn from it. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in His death and in His resurrection as the only means by which you can be saved. Friend, when you do that, understand, you do it only as the result of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. To receive that work is to believe. To reject it is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit for which there is no pardon if it is persisted in and continued. Now Jesus lays down that very, very stern warning. And with it, Mark concludes this, this story with regard to the scribes attempting to come and to intervene into Jesus' ministry. But then in verse 31, he picks back up with Jesus' family and their attempt to intervene and take hold of him. In this scene, we find him back there in that house, probably in Simon Peter and Andrew's house. And all these multitudes are pressing in around him. He couldn't even eat. Jesus' family, though, now they've come and they're trying to get into that house. Now, if you remember, this is a scene very similar to what we saw in chapter 2. You, saw, you remember when they brought the paralytic to get into that same house? And they couldn't get in there, and so they couldn't, they couldn't even weave their way through the door, and they wound up and they, they, they tore a roof, the hole in the roof to get him down. Well, evidently that hole had been patched by this point because Jesus' mother and brothers didn't try to go that way. They did it the old-fashioned way. They tapped somebody on the shoulder and said, Hey, could you, tell, could you tell Jesus that his mother and his brothers are outside? And so it began to pass, and they, they told someone, and it eventually gets to the inside, and there Jesus is surrounded by all of his people, and they say to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, our immediate expectation probably is that Jesus is going to jump up and go out there and see him. Who knows how long it's been since he's actually laid eyes on him. I can tell you this. I know that in my own life, if somebody ever comes and taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, your mama's looking for you, I'm stopping whatever I'm doing and going finding her. If I'm on the phone and I look and see that it's my mama's calling in, I'm on the phone with somebody else, I'm going to put you on hold to find out what my mother wants. 
Now, you can call me a mama's boy if you want to. That's okay. I can handle it. I'm happy to be one. But here's the thing. We don't see Jesus do that. Jesus doesn't jump up and run outside to greet his mother and his brothers. In fact, his actions, or really his lack of action, may surprise us. Not just his lack of action, but also his words that he speaks. You see, he's told that they're outside looking for him, and he responds this way. He says, who is my mother or my brothers? Now, particularly on Mother's Day, those words may seem a little harsh and unfeeling. In fact, I even thought about titling my sermon, Who's Your Mama? I decided against it. But before we pass judgment on Jesus here, let's remind ourselves of some things that we know about Jesus. We know that he was deeply sensitive to the family bonds for which God had blessed him. In fact, we read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 51, that Jesus lived a submissive and an obedient life toward his parents. And then let's not forget the last act that he did when he was hanging on the cross as his life ebbed away from him. The last thing that he did was to make sure that his own mother was going to be cared for by his friend and his disciple, John. See, in no way was Jesus calloused or was he uncaring? No way was he disobedient and flippant. The scriptures reveal that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless, holy life in all aspects, and that applies even here in his response to his mother and to his brothers. So now we must ask the question, what did he mean when he asked, who is my mother or my brothers? Well, he goes on to look around the room at those sitting around him who were likely... In the immediate context, the 12 disciples whom he had just called to himself, and he says, here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. In other words, as Sinclair Ferguson has written, what Jesus did was communicate to everyone there and to us as well that natural ties, they're not the only bonds in the world, nor are they necessarily the most lasting ones. Jesus' family had come to take hold of him. They'd come to take him away. They'd come to force him to take some time away from all the crowds and all the ministry with which he had been engaging. Some of them perhaps even thought that he was confused about his own identity. Others of them may have wanted to keep him from making a spectacle of himself, but in his response to them, Jesus states very clearly what he believes are their attempt to intervene. And the last sub-point on your outline this morning is this. Jesus makes sure that we understand that doing the will of God does not constitute derangement or instability, but rather it determines, it defines who make up his true family. Listen, Jesus loved and respected his own family, but as Ferguson points out, the fact that they feared for his sanity does not encourage us to think that they had much spiritual insight at this stage of the gospel record. Furthermore, what we recognize is that Jesus' words make clear that his family does not take priority over his commitment to God's will and to God's family. In fact, 
what this passage also teaches us is that commitment to God's will must be the top priority in each individual's life. You know, we're familiar with the phrase, blood is thicker than water. We know what that means. It means that under any normal given circumstances, family ties, family relationships will always trump other relationships, whatever they may be. Jesus, however, says that there is a kinship that is even thicker than blood. It's a kinship that is spiritual in nature, and it is characterized by obedience to the Father. And what is the central element that characterizes obedience to the Father? Well, Jesus was asked that question one time. A group of people gathered around him in John 6, verse 28, and they asked, what shall we do that we may work the works of God. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. You see, true obedience to God begins with faith in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that faith comes only by the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And when that happens, when by faith we confess our sins and trust in the atoning sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, the Scriptures teach us that we are then adopted into the family of God. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we then share a bond that is stronger than any genetic or ethnic ties that we may have with anyone else. So having said that, that brings our passage to a close. A passage in which we've seen two groups of folks who have, should have known better, yet they came to oppose Jesus. They make false accusations, they use faulty arguments, and they fail ultimately in their attempts to intervene in His ministry. But in the process, in the process, the Lord has taught us something. Taught us something that is highly significant. Something that we should stop and ponder and chew on. This morning, I've stated it this way in my ser- as my sermon in a sentence, which is this. By embracing Jesus as God's Son, anointed by God's Spirit, and by trusting in Him as Savior and Lord, we receive forgiveness of our sins and become members of His true family. On this Mother's Day, as many of you will get to spend time with your families, I hope that you will take time to consider the importance of this passage and the absolute necessity of faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. As beautiful and as enriching as our earthly family relationships can be, the Holy Spirit of God enlightens us to our invitation to become part of an even stronger and everlasting family. A family not bound together by our own blood, but a family bound together by faith in the life-giving blood of Jesus Christ who died in our place. My prayer is that each of you this morning, you will not turn from the light that the Holy Spirit has given concerning Jesus. That you will not reject it. That you will not turn from it and turn back to the darkness to your own peril. Rather, I pray that you will embrace the light that he has revealed and that you will receive his grace and become a member of God's family because, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.